the When We Were Young Festival. Oh, <laughs> like, literally no way. every band I've ever liked is going to be there. So I'm super excited. <laughs> I thought that one sold out in like seconds. Oh, it did. I was on the queue like instantly. And Saturday sold out. Too. And then while I was on the queue, <laughs> Sunday popped up. And so my, my best friend actually is going on Saturday and I'm going on Sunday and there's no resale. So we're going alone. <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Like, honestly, if you even go by yourself and you're like out in the parking lot, it might be worth it, you know, just oh, to listen sure. to him play again. Oh, yeah. Like, it's almost every band I've ever liked. Like, My Chemical Romance, AFI, The Used. Like, even Avril Lavigne's going to be there. Like, it's Avril. Like, it's crazy. Man, she's coming back. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure you have already seen it, but I'm not sure if like this would also interest you, Michael. But um, have you guys heard or seen that show candy on hulu no my wife brenda she was the one that initially brought it up to me and i was like what is this and she was she was just like well it's kind of like this like thriller tv show and nothing too crazy because it's on hulu but it has uh jessica beal as this the main oh, character oh yes candy. i did see it is it's based on a true story yeah is it? actual okay. events mm-hmm. okay yeah yeah i did see it the overall premise is that and, you know, this isn't spoiling anything because I think this was in the trailer, but it was it's like this girl, um, she's like involved in this murder in the neighborhood and then she gets blamed for it. Supposedly this from this trial going forward, this kind of changed a lot of the rules with like how they handle murders or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the the basic premise of it. And it's pretty trippy. Yeah, like I would I would recommend it, Candy. I think you guys would like it. I thought mm, you were okay. going to say the Umbrella Academy because it oh. was written by the singer of My Chemical Romance. Like, he no did the way. graphic novel. Yeah. Gerard? Yeah. What? Before okay. he was in My Chemical Romance, he was, um, like, an artist in in L.A. or uh, Not L.A., in New York. And, like, their first album's actually about, like, 9-11. No way. Wow. Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah, I knew he was an artist, but I didn't realize that he did, like, a, like a comic. And then they based that show off of the comic. Yeah. Or the graphic novel. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. I So I've, I've heard of it and <clears throat> it, it's kind of like a, a dark fantasy type of show, right? Like what it dark like. superhero kind of thing. Yeah. Superhero. Okay. It's notable because it had Elliot, Ellen at the time. Yes. So Elliot transitioned during the course of this show, mm-hmm. right? Like in between seasons. Yes. So are they going to work that into the story or how's that gonna um work? from what i've heard they did work it into the story i haven't seen the really? new season so i don't know like how it plays out but um from everything i've heard they did a pretty good job of working that into the story oh gotcha okay yeah last thing i wanted to see if um i'll just throw this at you really quick before <laughs> we jump in um did you see that uh worst roommate ever tv show on netflix <laughs> no so this is also like a thriller. I'll, I was trying to see if um, you would be knowledgeable about these because, you know, listening to your podcast, <laughs> every time they bring up something, you're like, oh, I know this one. I know that yeah, one. Yeah. But worst roommate ever. Um, it's about this this lady, Dorothea Puente. Oh, yeah. She was born she's in from Redlands. Redlands. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so she's like her. this psycho lady that uh-huh. she would like she would like rent out rooms or whatever to people and then she would Elderly kill them. people. Yeah, she would take advantage of them. She would like milk them dry mm-hmm. and then she would kill them. It was crazy. And, and then, then she would just bounce around. Their, she would still collect their checks because nobody oh, knew they were dead. Man. And she buried them in her garden and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what the worst roommate ever is about. And, and this also yeah, so, takes place in Redlands? 
Or she was just from Redlands. She's from Redlands, but I think it's around Southern California, right? Um, Interesting. I think it's around San Francisco, actually. Oh, okay. I think it's Northern California. But yeah, she was born in Redlands. That's where all the cycles are, honestly. You know, like Zodiac Killer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Didn't Zodiac Killer actually come down to Redlands? Um, Riverside. Yeah, there's there's one killing that hasn't like definitively been connected to him, um, but it happened at I think RCC, but I'm not 100 percent sure. <laughs> and the, actually, the premiere of um, the Zodiac movie, they did it at the Kokorian in Redlands, and the director that, yeah. was there, and the one the one survivor of him, he was there because he lives in Rancho Cucamonga, the survivor. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I remember at the the uh, the last scene of the movie Zodiac, uh, they meet at uh, I think it's Ontario at the airport there in Ontario, mm-hmm. and that yeah, I remember just being kind of tripped out on the fact that. It's so close. That's where they, right, exactly. That, that's where they met him. And at the time I was living in Connecticut. So I was like, oh shit, that's weird. Yeah, I know I, that place. I know that place really well. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, trippy, trippy. Are we mobbing it? <laughs> Let's mob it. <laughs> How are you doing, everybody? Welcome to Affliction Autos Podcast, episode Sweet 16. My name is Eric, and the other voices occupying your head this time are. A man of many trades, good friend, colleague, and co-host, Michael. How do you do? And we're also joined by a very special guest this time. She is one of the co-hosts of the hugely popular podcast that covers all things paranormal, true crime, urban legends, and interesting history. That's right, folks. We're, of course, talking about the hit series, Dark Chatter. Please join me in welcoming today's guest, my friend, Nicole. Hello. Thank you to all the listeners out there for joining us. Available on all major podcast streaming services with new episodes dropping on the first Saturday of each month, 5 a.m. Pacific. Afflictionados is a monthly podcast where we primarily talk about films that range from mind-numbing to mind-blowing. We may also cover TV shows or other forms of media. We will be getting into spoilers here, and there will be only the healthiest amount of expletives tossed in. You have been warned. Now, if you ain't ready, then get ready, because in today's episode, we will be discussing the murder mystery thriller seven. <laughs> it would have been so awesome if we could have recorded this on seven seven. That's actually what I was kind of aiming for. But, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. It's, it's just a number. Retiring law enforcement detective Lieutenant William Somerset is abruptly partnered with short-tempered but idealistic detective David Mills, who both hunt a serial killer that uses the seven deadly sins as his motives. As of this recording, I actually watched Seven on Netflix, so it's available there to those that are interested, those that are listening to the podcast. I don't know if it's going to be there by the time this goes live, but um, as of this recording, yeah, it's on Netflix. I had a a couple interesting facts about the movie, and I want to see what your guys' thoughts were on these. Writer Andrew Kevin Walker was first inspired to create the screenplay after visiting New York City and originally envisioned the Somerset character to be played by William Hurt. Do you guys know who William Hurt is? Mm, Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Altered States. Maybe if I saw his face. He's actually a great actor. The one I remember fondly with him is... Man, what was it? The uh, the one with Kevin Costner that I, I, I think I suggested to you, Michael. Yeah, before. yeah, you did. Uh, um, wow, what uh, the heck I, is I don't know why the, the title slipped in my mind right now, but he that's also the one with Dane Cook in it. Do you know what I'm talking about, Nicole? Dane Cook? No. <laughs> Dane Cook, yeah, in wow. a serious role. What? I didn't know he yeah. could be serious. 
Oh, Mr. Brooks. Man, how did I forget Mr. Brooks? Mr. Brooks. Mm, okay. But that's that one's a that's a great movie. And he he kind of plays the main character's alter ego. So the main character is Kevin Costner and William Hurt is his alter ego. So that's kind of like the the devil on his shoulder. That's always like he's like, "Come on, man, just do it. Just kill him." So it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's it. that would that would be an interesting performance to see because William Hurt is so he's super uh, charismatic in that movie. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he tends to be more just like like calm, calming his voice. He's actually calm, super calm in in that movie. But I almost feel like that's what makes it so chilling is that yeah, yeah, he's yeah. just like so calm and um, emotionless about these. Ah. Yeah, calculated about these these murders. Yeah. But obviously because he's like a figment of his imagination. But Al Pacino was actually considered for the Somerset role early on, but he declined so he could make City Hall instead. Which, as we all know, is a hit. <laughs> I've never seen it. Yeah, so Good I, I can tell you. And uh, Denzel Washington and Sylvester Stallone both turned down the roles of Mills. So that would have been a, a really different movie. I feel like seriously. Oh man, yeah, definitely. This was uh... for better or for worse. I don't know, but it's like I think Denzel has gone on record to say that he actually regretted turning down the role for Seven. Yeah, yeah. I think the way I think about it, I don't know. Morgan Freeman just played it so well, so even keel, even if. Uh, Denzel's interpretation were well. Denzel would have played Mills, not Somerset. Oh, got yeah, you. So oh. that would have been way different, right? Very different. Oh, yes. Very different. Yes, definitely. Also, wanted to say New Line Cinema allegedly changed the ending of the movie to be a more action-oriented. I guess to be more in line with other detective thrillers around that time. But uh, director David Fincher. I guess he read the older script by accident and he then accepted the directing role based off of the old script. And so when New Line was like, uh, well, that's actually not what we want to do. He's like, well, sorry, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> so it actually reverted and then well, it, it changed and then reverted back. So I thought mm. that was pretty interesting. I wonder that is interesting. I wonder what action oriented ending they would have gone with. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know. And uh, one last fact. Seven, the film ended up being the seventh highest grossing film of 1995. So, you know how that, that was kind of going with my saying was like, that would have been cool if we record on seven, seven. 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 And it was also the seventh highest grossing film. So actually, I was like, wait, that can't be right. So you look up, you pull up um, highest grossing movies of 1995 and seven is right there at spot number seven. Interesting. What was your guys' initial thoughts on the movie? Having revisited the movie, you got to go in with like a, a more matured mindset. Yeah. The first time I saw it, I was probably too young to be watching a movie like that, but um, that's mostly been my life. So, <laughs> but um, maybe that's why I'm so messed up, but um, I remember liking it as a child, even though I was messed up, but um, I like how dark it is. It definitely makes you feel kind of gross. Cause like, all the environments that they're in are like grungy and like dingy and dark and just like a place that you don't want to be like mm -hmm. almost every single place they visit. Like obviously the greed and everything and pride, those are cleaner places. Um, but pretty much every other place is dark and gross and dingy. Like even Mill's apartment is just like still kind of gross. And I'm like, Ooh, like yeah. how do they live there? Um, <laughs> Uh, it's kind of funny because after I rewatched this, right after I started watching Mindhunter, which is the same director, David Fincher, oh. and I didn't even notice. And my boyfriend was like, 
isn't this the same guy that directed Seven? And I was like, oh, that's so weird. I'm like, probably just the vibes. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I want to continue with this vibe. Yeah, and Mindhunter has that same like really somber and kind of just dreary environment. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, even like the intro was it the nine inch nails song and everything like mm-hmm. kind of remixed and all that like mm-hmm. it, it totally sets the tone for the rest of the movie it's pretty pretty awesome i feel like and i'm kind of in the same vein as you in in the fact that i was watching a lot of these kind of uh <laughs> a more mature movies i guess you could say and uh, really dark in theme uh, early on and i remember watching child's play when i was like five years old I had no idea. Like I wasn't, I wasn't terrified watching it, but I remember thinking like the doll I thought was a little man. I didn't realize that he was supposed to be a toy. So I thought he was just like a, you know, a little person. And um, I was like, why, why is this little guy so upset? Like, why is Angry. he trying to kill all these people? <laughs> just didn't understand. <laughs> that the soul was transferred. So that, that probably messed me up going forward as well. Like I'm, I'm like seeing these really like sad and like dark events happen on screen. And I'm just like, wow, I'm just eating it up, absorbing everything like a sponge. Yeah. Uh, same here. When we were kids, uh, my dad had us watching like rated our films all the time. And I remember uh, my mom would get upset with him or my aunts would get upset with him and just be like, you shouldn't be showing these kids these movies. And we're, we're watching, I think um, in fifth, I was in fifth grade when, when it came out, when seven came out. So I remember we saw it not long after it did come out. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember it was, it was, you asked before about what we thought now looking at it with mature eyes. And uh, I would say it, it almost felt like a, a different movie to me watching it now versus when I saw it when I was younger. And I, I'd seen parts of it again throughout the years, but never really sat down to watch it from beginning to end. Actually, I remember when I was, uh, I went to, uh, had a little short stint in film school. And when I, when I went there, I remember breaking down the intro and it was, it was weird because I have since grown to appreciate Nine Inch Nails. I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't have an appreciation for it back then. Uh, it was so unsettling. I was actually surprised I, because I'm, I'm not into industrial music typically, but um, mm-hmm. more like that grunge, but um, I was surprised that I recognize that song, you know, right from the beginning because it doesn't actually have the chorus until the very end of the intro. So up until then, it's just like the the instrumentals, right? Right, right. right. But it's so it, it's so recognizable. I think that's how uh, prominent of a song that was. It was that even if you weren't into that music, you knew what that song was. <laughs> yes, right, right. I was definitely. like, I was like, this like if it has like this Depeche Mode vibe to it. But I was like, no, it's a little more, a little more eerie even. But uh, but yeah, just uh, finishing up with what I was saying before about how you were you were like, what do you, what do you think of this now? Yeah, it just felt like the themes were popping out way more, um, and like Mills's character stood out to me a little bit more. His his uh, his aggression mm. was so much more evident to me, having seen it already and knowing what what, what how it all kind of unfolds. I thought that that was uh, I just appreciated it so much more. I was like enthralled. With the, with the movie <laughs> as the I watched it. Yeah, I almost right, feel like right. as you get older, you're kind of less looking at the surface level and you're you're kind of looking past that, you know, diving deeper into the scenes now and you're understanding why these events are happening or why they're acting this way and what they're trying to do. And you're kind of almost thinking like, okay, what's the next step? Where are they going to go from here now? Right, right. I found myself like 
looking around at the scene like looking for clues <laughs> like what are they gonna <laughs> find you know i guess that's just the true crime like in me i'm like okay where's where's the next clue like kind of like looking in the background like not just like what's happening in the scene but like everything going on in the background and like looking for other <laughs> things that i might find did, did you see kevin spacey standing behind the curtain uh with his shoes peeking at another <laughs> <laughs> But she joked about that in our Batman episode. <laughs> he's in every scene. He's in every. Uh, he's at every crime scene. The killer. Yeah, he's, he's like the janitor mopping the floor in the background. So creepy. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, yeah, I, I have a lot to say about the characters. So um, I guess we'll start off with Somerset. He's actually the one where it actually opens up with uh, Detective Somerset. Kind of, he's like in his apartment, right, getting ready for work or whatever. I feel like his character is like really interesting to me, um, played by Morgan Freeman, because as he's getting ready for a shift, I feel like he's very old school, kind of by the book and maybe even over prepared and over organized sometimes. Like um, you even get the sense that he's not very liked by some of his peers, because when he shows up at the, the first crime scene, they're just like, oh, God, like. What kind of bullshit do you have to complain about now? Because you you have him asking these questions, right? Like Somerset's like, oh, ha- was the kid in the room? Was, did, the, did the child see it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was just like, what the hell does it matter if the kid was in the room? You know, like, oh, I can't he's wait dead. until you're gone. Yeah. 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 But the thing is, because he's a detective, right. they're just cops. They don't know the questions to ask. And like, he's a good detective. He knew right off the bat what was happening first time he saw it. He's a seasoned detective. He knows what questions to ask to get the case solved. Like, these are just regular cops. They don't know what questions to ask. <laughs> In fact, it almost seems like uh, a reaction like that, of course, w- watching it now again, just having a different mindset, watching these these the behavior on screen. So I'm like, oh, it's not that he's weird. That's just how that cop feels about him. And that says more about that cop than it does about him and why that cop is uh, working that beat and, right. and why he's not a detective. Right. And, and they're probably jealous. Precisely. They're jealous. And yeah. because he's in a way, because he is such an enigma, because he 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 you can't he's hard he's a hard person to understand but they're also not very curious they're not asking him what did you see there why are you doing that they're not inquisitive they're just like so they're so definitively in some ways like mills you know just like god you know you're so weird well he's also he's known for wanting to work by himself because i almost feel like he thinks that other people just kind of slow him down he solves these crimes on his own and he has his own method and a lot of people they don't understand it they think that his methods aren't effective because he even says i think later on the movie uh, Somerset is talking about how a lot, if not like most of his cases were never solved. He's like, all, all we do is we collect evidence, we box it up, and then we sometimes go back to it if there's a trial. More often than not, it just sits on the shelf, collects dust, and we never see it again. Mm-hmm. Cold case, right? Wow. Wow. And he's, he's also very somber as well. Like he's not very pleasant to be around. It could be the job. It could be. Yeah. Right. Right. He's worn down. He seems that way, right? And th- that's something that I think is evident that w- th- in a comment that he makes to Mills when he says, I just never seen it done that way before, where Mills actually came from uh, from the countryside, from upstate, or, or I don't know if it was upstate, but he came from the countryside to work in, in, in the city, in the inner city. Definitely wasn't as busy as that city for sure, because I think he alludes to the fact that he came from like out of town or whatever, and Somerset immediately says like, yeah, but you don't know how things run around here. This is a whole nother ball game. You're you may have been a big fish in a small pond, but now you're a small fish in a big pond. Right. Man, I want to get into Detective Mills now. 
after you you see how uh, Somerset is and how he treats everything and how people kind of react to him, then you got Detective Mills that comes in, played by Brad Pitt. And uh, the initial dynamic between the two main characters, I, I thought was pretty interesting because you do have like that that young um, up and comer, you know, and then you got the guy that's like the grizzled old veteran that's like really bitter on his way out. Yeah, they got very different ideas and attitudes. Yes, definitely. Like almost polar opposites. Mills is very like eager and Somerset's just like, let's get this over with. Yeah, you really you really get the sense he's just he really is broken. <laughs> and he's not really interested in the case. Like he obviously, you know, with that first murder, um, you don't automatically assume it's gonna be a serial killer. So he's just like, Yeah, you know, my focus is just on this one. Once I'm done with this, um, I'm out of here, you know, by the end of the week. And oh, I guess, you know, that's another thing. He has seven days before he's gone. So right, right, there you yeah, go, seven, seven again. Yeah. But um, yeah, and then Mills is coming in and he's kind of gonna fill that void once Somerset is gone. And Mills is just like, he he just has like that upbeat attitude and he's more optimistic for sure <laughs> about everything because he's naive. He, he's optimistic, right. But he's like a, a shoot first and aim second kind of person where he's just, okay, where do I turn my anger? This guy's a jerk, blah, blah, blah. Like, let's just, let's just go gung ho. Yeah, he's um, very reactive. Very mm-hmm. reactive, right. Versus Versus the methodical, uh, way that uh, Somerset approaches things, and and it's mm-hmm. it's so indicative of uh, I mean, that the scene in the library is indicative of the kind of person that Somerset is. Where uh, and we can I don't know if you I, I didn't check the notes if you were going to talk about that scene in the library at all, but I really loved that scene as a kid, and I remember um, I loved it even when I went back and kind of cut it up a little bit for for mm-hmm. class. But it was uh, he loves to be alone, like you said before. He likes to dive into the minds of other people. That's why he likes reading books. It's just him and the author, or authors, um, as he compiles all this. Uh, but you know, he even, he has like another weird thing about him. Uh, Somerset, I'm talking about, mm-hmm. is that he like goes to sleep with a metronome. Like that's like the white noise almost that he uses to go to sleep. He just like click, click, click click and then that's how he goes to sleep and everything's really routine to him you know it's all it's very structured yes definitely very structured yeah yeah like he needs that maybe he needs that because of all the chaos that he deals with every day like Mm -hmm. he needs some kind of like serenity some kind of stability something he can depend on to be very regular as opposed to you don't know what what you're going to be walking into every day you walk into work Mm mm-hmm Something to keep him grounded. Yeah. Do you think in some way he might be a little OCD? Like he just, he really wants the things to be a certain way. Otherwise, like um, it's not going to go right. I, in some ways, yes. I, I, I don't think so though. No, because he feels comfortable in the chaos. He's, I don't see him trying to bring order per se. I think he's always trying to understand the mind of the individual, whether it's again, reading a book or whether it's reading a crime scene. He's very interested in, in trying to understand that person without imposing himself on the scene versus Mills's approach, who is very like, you know, obviously like, like a bull in a China store, just running through and causing and you all can, sorts you of- You can definitely see Mills walking in and he's like bumping stuff over like, oh, whoops, oh, I didn't mean to touch that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because like with that first crime scene, he actually gets kicked out of the crime scene, right? right so right. someone says like, can you just leave? I, I got this. Don't worry about it. That was definitely disrespectful. Mills didn't take that lightly at all. Well, it could, right. But that was, that was Mills's interpretation of those actions. It, I, I don't think that Somerset intended it to be taken as uh, disrespectful. It was just Somerset, I think, is used to doing things by himself. And because he could tell that 
Mills was overcompensating for his for how green he is you know he's he just mm. was stammering talking about this and that and the other thing it had nothing to do with anything that was going on in the crime scene he wasn't asking questions he wasn't getting a feel for it he was just trying to talk about how you know things that they did back, the way they did it before and a lot of it is like he, it's almost like he's just trying to break the tension and maybe you just build rapport you get the sense that he really wants to be liked by Somerset, but Somerset's just so freaking annoyed by him. He's just like, can you just leave? Like, I don't want to hear you talk anymore. I guess to Somerset, Mills is just talking for the sake of talking. Like he's not really helping or doing anything. He, I think he understands that because he's, he's somebody that empathizes really well, um, which is why he gets along so well with Mills's wife. He, he asks questions. He understands. That's why he cracks up at the, the shaking of the house and every of the apartment when the train <laughs> goes by. He mm-hmm. really can. He gets people. And I think he's just he just doesn't want to have to go through. He doesn't want to have to hold this guy's hand. He knows what this guy's doing. He knows that Mills is trying to get him to like him. He doesn't give a shit, though. He's just like, I got to do this thing. I don't give a shit about making you feel comfortable right now he tried it's not that as though he didn't try because in the first scene he does tell or not maybe it's like the second scene but when they first meet he tells him yeah i was thinking we could go in and, and have a have a cup of coffee or have a drink or whatever and and, and catch up and i could fill you in and mills he's is like, like no, no 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 let's just do it let's just go in there you know and he's like all right but so again it was really who rebuffed who at the beginning but i don't think it was necessarily intended to be like screw you you know you 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 shined me on at the beginning i'm gonna shine you on now not vindictive it was more just I have a job to do and you're obviously not as engaged in this work right now. So I'm just going to get you out of here before you mess shit up. (laughs) He's also probably like, what's the point? I'm going to be gone in seven days anyways. Like why, why should I even get to know this guy? Right. 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 Why even build a relationship? But also, as I said before, how Mills was, he's very much again, like uh, uh, reactive. And so are these other cops that, that on the, off the beat that, that um, Somerset has had to deal with. So I think that maybe there is some sort of, uh, maybe he's seeing in him the way that he's been treated in the past. It's just like, look, I, I just don't want to, you know what? He's probably seen it time and time again, where you got these uh, young guys coming in and they're really passionate. And then just over time they get broken down. Even in some way, I want to say that Somerset probably started out that way. And then he just, now he really fully understands how the city works. And he's just like, listen, happiness just, dies here this is a vacuum you know and it'll suck all the life out of you there's no point in trying to hold on to it and he's just really depressed about (laughs) pretty much everything yeah but then when he tells the story later when he's speaking with the wife like you kind of like see maybe he was he could have been different in the past Mm -hmm. and then this this event kind of changed him and kind of made him want to like distance himself from like relationships at all that's kind of he didn't want to go through that pain again Right, Mm -hmm. right. So he's like, why get to know anybody? It's just going to end in pain kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty sad and lonely uh, mindset, right? It's like you don't want to create any relationships or get to know anyone because there's no telling how long you're going to be around. Especially in their line of work, it's so dangerous that you could die tomorrow or that person could die tomorrow. And then you're just like, well, there you go. Now my heart's broken again. I could have avoided that if I just kept to myself and didn't get to know this person. Right. It's a it's a coping mechanism. He's found a way to deal with it. Going into the first victim who will become uh, one of many in a, a series. So the morbidly obese man bound by his wrists and ankles found dead face first in a bowl of spaghetti representing gluttony. So what do you guys think of this crime scene? It was so disgusting. 
Yeah, it's one of the, yeah. <laughs> they definitely turned up the, the gross factor on this one. I don't Oof. think they could do much. The way it was set up, even the lighting. Yes. Yeah. Or the lack yeah. of lighting, the roaches, which by the way, they actually did let loose a bunch of roaches and um, apparently <laughs> they, they were getting all over the place. So yeah. that was like probably one of the worst <laughs> scenes to film. That's disgusting. Oh man, but yeah, I, I all I it was funny because I I was faced with the these kind of these two opposing feelings. On the one hand, I was grossed out, but I, I had already kind of anticipated that because I remember seeing it as a kid. And just the as a kid, I don't even think I really remembered many of the other scenes as well as I did this because it was so fucking disgusting and horrible. Right out the gate, you know, out this the is gate. the very first yeah. one. Yeah, just him and the wife beater and then the barbed wire on his ankles and just all, all this. Uh, yeah, it was just it was over the top. So I was faced with that one feeling of this grotesque, but then, but then I was reveling in the nineties. <laughs> On the other hand, I was like, they don't make movies like this anymore. Not, right? not this way, you know, this feeling. And I was like, I was like, Oh, disgusting. But mm, this feels, uh, the, the, uh, it feels so familiar it. at the same time. Right. They nailed it. Yeah. It felt totally. so good. Right. I was like, Oh God, this is, this is delicious. You want to feel something and you want to yeah. feel like you're there and like, if you were there, you'd be so disgusted. Oh, I don't want to touch anything. When I go in a public bathroom, like touch as little as possible. Everything's disgusting, <laughs> you know, but it's even worse. It's like 10 times worse. Oh, like just yeah. don't touch anything. Get in and get out. But you literally have to be digging through things, looking for clues and stuff. It's just gross. Oh, man. And then the coup de grace when they fucking they lift his head up. Oh, oh like just you thought it couldn't get any oh, worse. Like, like it's disgusting. Yeah. Maggots yeah. and his eyes are, you know, he's got cataracts or whatever you would call that. His eyes are gray and his mouth is agape and just like, yeah, he's dead. And that's like, I think when that scene ends is they should pull it up. Like, yeah, well, it's funny dead. because I think wasn't it uh, Somerset again? That's like, is he dead? And I think the cops were like, well, he's been sitting there for a couple hours. You know, I think he's dead. But he's like, but did you check his vitals? And so I think that's when Mills actually checked checks on him and confirms that he is dead. Mm -hmm. You know, that seems like a simple question, but you know, that's kind of an important thing. That's something that they actually miss in one of the later. Right. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. right. They just show up and assume like, Oh, the guy must be dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really quick on that bathroom (laughs) mention. We've all been in a bathroom that looks like it's from like a saw movie. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah yeah like we walk in it's like the flickering light i see a, like a dead oh. body in the corner and i just like step over him to get to the urinal yeah, really yeah. quick and don't want to touch anything business. flush with the foot you know like yeah, and yeah, then yeah, just yeah. <laughs> like gas station bathrooms yeah gas. Yeah. those are the ones those are the ones <laughs> that's it i was slowing down the scene and um <laughs> you probably weren't too nicole but i was like kind of like looking around the stuff in the apartment and Man, this apartment was actually well stocked. I don't know if this was because this guy actually just ate this much or was it the murderer that really stocked this uh, this apartment so that way he didn't have to go very far. Because, right. I mean, wasn't there even a uh, shopping list or like a, a grocery bag or something nearby that they found? Yeah, I think that they alluded to the fact that they suspected uh, the killer had been making runs to the grocery store. Because this guy's eating so much. He's like, well, I didn't bring enough food, so I got to go get some more. <laughs> Right. I'm almost thinking like Simpsons, like how he's in hell and he, the devil keeps feeding him donuts and he's just like, oh, like he's fatter, <laughs> but he's like, oh, no, have to be doing it. The one thing I can think, okay, so this guy's consuming all this food and, and, and all I can think in my mind is if I'm this dude and I'm eating all this food, I'm only hoping that eventually this guy will stop making me eat this food. So I'll just keep eating this food. And it, it, so, so, right. So it makes me wonder like, and in other other scenes, uh, other of these murders, 
I think to myself, wouldn't it have just been better to get a bullet through the head? Exactly. It would have just been so I would have just if he had a gun to my head and said, do this thing. I would have been like, no, fuck you, pull pull the trigger. But mm. but I, I guess that's looking at it from one perspective. Another would be, well, perhaps these people are under the assumption. Maybe this guy's given them some false hope that, that they will might let you go. That he'll let you go, right? And that this is just a momentary thing that you have to deal with. Damn, like eat five spaghetti cans and I'll let you go type of thing. And then he yeah. just keeps adding like five more, five more. But it's just, it's interesting to get into the psychology of the person who's the, the victim, because maybe that was never said. Maybe this was just an assumption on their sure. part that, Oh yep. God, if I just do this thing, he'll just leave me. He'll stop. He'll leave me alone. I would want a bullet in the head if I had to live in that apartment. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> so I just feel like fine. Just end it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh good. Someone's here. Good. I'm just living in filth. <laughs> it doesn't just have do to it be for me. me. Thanks. I'm not a happy person. Right. I'm also I'm probably assuming that a lot of it was probably already gross to begin with, but I feel like it has to have been because he had been there for such a long period of time without cleaning, right? He he could have been a slob partially as well, but it could have also been the fact that there's just all this food and excrements all over the place, you know, and then like the the bugs just kind of moved in. Well, no, they well, the here's grind the thing. was just like thick. It was too like lived in. It was too lived in. And also they made mention of the fact that he had only been at that plate for 45 minutes before they found his body. Really? Okay. So, yeah. So I was like, 45 minutes. There's no way that place got to be that fucking filthy without (laughs) having taken time. Jeez. Okay. So that guy was just disgusting to begin with. He, he, he was, he was, but then, you know, God, uh, just discussing this makes me think of the fact that the the killer is not so different in fact than mills as intelligent as in, in a weird way he kind of embodies both characters where he's methodical like morgan freeman like uh, somerset but mm-hmm. he's also got this very idealistic way of looking at the world in the sense that and i say idealistic but i mean he's got a certain ideal which is that they should we should be living a certain way so he's imposing his own beliefs on these people because and, and so he's like oh yeah screw this guy he, he ate himself to death but mm. the real question is, is that what happened this guy really did to himself? Did he really kill himself? So all these all these crimes, I'm like, did they they didn't kill themselves. And I can get uh, I'll get to that part. What I mean about this later, it comes up sure. at the very, very end. But um, I was thinking, man, climb in this guy's shoes and, and, and live in this this heavy set man's life for a day. And imagine hating yourself the way he must have hated himself. And to go back to that dingy ass, terrible apartment. And you can, you can <laughs> say he's a total slob, mm-hmm. but it's like, are we born slobs? He was somebody's kid one before. And, and, you know, he just, who knows how he be- began to feel about himself in this state. And so it's like the serial killer, all he saw was a fat man and disgusted and just disgusted him. And so immediately he's just like, they even guy. alluded to the fact that he was a shut in, right? Like he didn't go outside very often and mm. uh, obviously he didn't clean. So uh, maybe he, he saw this guy and he was like, he can't even fit out the door. He probably doesn't leave because he's just so fat and he mm-hmm. doesn't move around. He just sits down all day long or whatever. And um, so I don't know, maybe that, that was also an easy target because he was so alone. Like no one really cared about him and he didn't have any friends that were going to check on him. So Mm -hmm. he could do whatever he wanted for however long he wanted to. He's obviously very depressed. If he lives in a place like that, he probably eats his feelings. He's a shut in. Like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it just kind of shows you like, don't judge a book by its cover. Like kind of, you don't know what, what other people are living. Like you don't know like what kind of day they're having or anything. So for him to just assume like, oh, he's just gluttonous. Mm -hmm. He's 
eating his feelings, he's making up for, you know, maybe not having relationships or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, like this man's obviously very depressed to be living this way. It's not even revealed until a little bit later, right? When the uh, coroner or the pathologist, I guess, reveals that he didn't die from like choking on the food or anything, but it was like a mixture of like he had uh, his stomach burst from stretching so far. Yeah. And so he had like internal hemorrhaging and I don't know. I was a little kind of skeptical about the bruise thing, like how they said there's this tiny bruise on the back of his head and that was most likely uh, a gun. And so everyone just kind of ran with that idea. Like they knew for a fact, like, yep, he was forced to do it at gunpoint, this and that. I was like, I mean, there wasn't enough evidence there for me anyway. I mean, it could be, it could have been anything, but he could have told him it was a gun. Yeah. Like it could be like that whole, like when old movies, uh, a bank robber would come in with his hand in his pocket and pretend like (laughs) he had a gun, you know, like it could be anything. (laughs) Yeah. See, I'll plug you. Yeah. Open the drawer. Give me the cash. <laughs> what was it that at the Atlantic accent order? Yeah, transatlantic. Transatlantic. Yeah. yeah. Um, fun fact about that corner scene as well was that because it was so uncomfortable to be in this suit, fat suit, that apparently the director <laughs> wanted to make the fat suit well endowed, so at least that way he would have some sort of <laughs> something to kind of brag about, like in this role, because mostly he's playing dead. Oh my god! <laughs> so it's like Such I, a man I know you're sweating in the suit, so here you go. But dude, you're hung. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because. Somerset already has the foresight. He's like, "Uh oh, I see where this is going. I don't like this." Like he he kind of has this gut feeling about these murder scenes. So he's like, "Okay." So he's trying to explain it to the captain, and uh, that's Arlie Ermy as the captain, I believe. Ah, uh, yeah. And um, so he's explaining to the captain that he's like, "Listen, I I don't want to be involved in this. This is gonna. I'm telling you, this is gonna be like a, a series of murders, and I don't want to be dragged into this. I'm done by the end of the week. Just give this to someone else." But don't give it to Mills because I don't think Mills is ready for it, but give it to someone else. And so Mills is, you know, he's like trying to fight for it. And the captain actually tells him that, no, you're going to stay on it and I'll reassign Mills since you guys aren't getting along. Mills thinks he's more than ready for it. And Somerset wants to get rid of it, but he also doesn't want to give it to Mills. And he's kind of protecting him in a way, you know, even though he doesn't really know this guy and he doesn't really like this guy. Yeah. He he gets he, again him saying I've never I've never seen it done that way. He reiterated that two or three times. He's like, "What do you mean?" And he's like, "I've just." He's like, "I get I get what you're saying. You know, I've just never seen it done that way where somebody moves to the inner city as opposed to retiring, leaving the inner city, going and just kind of like going off off into the pasture, being put out to pasture." Yeah, he's like, "Why would you want this? Why would you ask for this?" And it makes sense in in light of the fact that uh, Mills is is kind of ambitious, right? So it's like. Uh, I think of it in the sense that, you know, psychologists, when they go through school, um, they will deal with some of the some of the most uh, crazy cases. Right. Um, they'll deal with criminally insane people. Kind of what um, Mindhunter is about, where the whole concept of Mindhunter, how we we're talking about before, was instead of just incarcerating these people, they want to understand why they're doing these things. They want mm. to understand the psychology of it. it. It's so iterative, right? To get better at something, you have to do more of it. And he has no shortage of cases that are going to be coming up that he can learn from Mills. 
and so by doing this, he can move up the ladder more quickly and get more experience. If you if you think about it, because he is so impetuous, he wants he wants it right now. He, he wants, wants to prove to, himself. Wants to prove himself. I think right out the gate, he wants to be like the hot shot. Like I'm going to come in, I'm going to solve this case, and everyone's going to be impressed. Right, right. Um, I, I, he just he just thinks that he's so capable. He doesn't see. He he hasn't been humbled yet by by the years like Somerset has been where Somerset instead kind of goes in more inquisitively and wants to see what's there to be seen and see mm-hmm. it for what it is. Um, instead Mills goes in and immediately interprets it as like, no, this guy's a fucking whack job. He's, he's this person. He's that. I bet he's, <laughs> you know, he's, he comes up with all these uh, assumptions. Right. Precisely. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, um, the next day, you know, sure enough, there's another victim and uh, the seemingly wealthy guy is killed in his law firm office and the blood is uh, used to write out greed in the carpet. So what do you guys think of this crime scene? It's very flashy. I almost feel like they glossed over it. And I was at first I was a little mm. upset by the fact that I'm like, man, this seems like really just like they didn't let you study the scene as much as they did for gluttony. They didn't. Well, I feel like as the movie progresses, you get less and less time mm-hmm. with the crime scene and the victim. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think initially the reason why I was kind of upset was because, you know, it, it seems very just like in your face. Like as soon as you walk in, you you see greed first before you even see the victim, right? Because the victim's like, right. isn't he like hogtied like towards the back of the room? And then like the, there's like the blood that leads to the word greed. And then you got like Mills just like freaking he's all super comfortable, like sitting at the desk, spinning around the chair and everything, barely kind of paying attention while CSI is kind of doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was giving me anxiety. I'm like, stop touching everything. Exactly. <laughs> just like, oh, what does this pen do? Oh, it writes. Sweet. But what's cool is later on, they actually do go back and they pull up more um, evidence from this. But I think it's not until Somerset, he he's like kind of given those little shavings and then he's prompted to go revisit that grungy apartment and then you know he's kind of like taking a closer look and is like where did these shavings come from because this was in the guy's mouth or throat or something like that there was like pieces carved from the floor or something right the linoleum yeah yeah he was like wait this refrigerator was pulled out and it tore up like two little strips from the linoleum he pulls out the fridge and that's where he sees gluttony behind her yep at least that one was a little bit more like you had to do some detective work, whereas greed for me was like, bam, served on the silver platter for you. But maybe he did that because they didn't find the gluttony in the first one. So he wanted to make them revisit mm. it and like connect them, actually connect them. Maybe he thought they were they were idiots and he's like, oh, these guys aren't getting it. And yes. it's almost like it, it's not as satisfying if they're not playing along because they're just like exactly. so dumb. That yep. <laughs> you're like, OK, I'm going to have to like hold your hand through this thing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think this is when uh, Somerset kind of uh, goes over for dinner, right? To Mills's apartment. Doesn't Mills's wife invite him over? I think Somerset inherently just manages to start helping Mills with his case because Somerset is assigned to gluttony. Uh, Mills is on greed, but Mills isn't getting anywhere. He has like all these photographs and everything, and Somerset's just kind of like glossing over him. I guess there needed to be one detail to focus on. And of course, that happens to be the very last photo in the giant, like, 100 photo stack that he's looking through. It has, like, the blood circles around this lady's eyes. The wife's eyes. Yeah. The wife. That's right. 
they end up uh, having to track her down, question her, and they're, they're showing her the photos. Do you see anything strange? She's like, no. Like, I mean, that's kind of a messed up situation to be in because you have to look at these pictures and they're trying to cover them up as much as possible. But you also need her to be able to see most of the photo, you know, right. to be able to identify anything strange. And I thought this part was genius. This is what made me like the greed murder scene even more so than gluttony was because she was like, wait, that painting is upside down. Mm. And he's like, what do you mean? Because if you look at it, it's an abstract painting. Someone that's like not really into art, you'll look at it. And it's just a bunch of like colors and splots all over the place. But, and, and also art, people interpret it differently, right? Especially if it's abstract. Right. So who's to say it was upside down, but she only knew it being hung a certain way. And she was like, wait, that's upside down. The cops were all through that office and they're like, I didn't see anything upside down, but sure enough, it was this photo that was flipped and only people that were around it would identify that. So I thought that was a pretty cool way of like sneaking a clue in there without anyone noticing. The only thing I thought was kind of (laughs) like didn't make sense in this and um, maybe it's me just being like stereotypical is if this guy was so greedy, um, a lot of guys that are very greedy and all about their work do not pay much attention to their wives. So I just thought it was kind of like interesting that she would even know that that was upside down. Like guys like this don't want their wives to even have any kind of part in the business. Would she have even gone to his office much to realize that that painting was upside down? Maybe it's just I've watched too much Criminal Minds and that's like pretty much like they're very like stereotypical like, oh, this is a rich man. He doesn't have anything to do with his wife. He cheats on her all the time. That goes hand in hand more so with greed. But I guess they needed to kind of like have some clue to be found. Hmm. Also, at the same time, like how you're saying, was he really a deserving victim? Because maybe he just seemed greedy from an outside point of view. Right. We don't know how he was before he died because we only know him at his death. Yeah. I was also wondering how the killer came across all these different people who were in different like walks of life and how these particular people caught his eye as one of the deadly sins, like how he came across all of them. I feel like it could have been dug a little more deeply into, but I, I'm not going to give too much away, I guess, because <laughs> it kind of <laughs> at the end. Yeah, I think that's part of the mystery to it as well, is that you don't really know like what it is this guy's thinking and why is he is he targeting these specific people? How did he even meet them? A lot of it, I think the planning they said multiple times took years, like it took a long time. He's taking heavy notes and he's he's writing in, in several journals, but like they're in no particular order. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost like he's just writing things down, but he's he doesn't ever plan on reading it. He's just kind of needing to like document it in some way. And then, you know, he just like throws in another pile and never reads it again. Why does he even need to write it down in the first place? Maybe he's a visual person, though, and mm-hmm. he needs to write it down to keep it in his head. Mm-hmm. Or to, mm. or to get it from out of his head onto paper because it's almost like maybe it torments him otherwise. And the thing too is, you know, they want to be known. Like you're saying, here here he is leaving these clues. Of course, he didn't have to do any of that stuff. It's a, it's part of the game, though. He wants to be he wants to be understood, and so in, in no particular order, you know, he's writing these thoughts down. Or at least he's not. It, it, I don't think it really matters to him much what order you read it in, so much as you just do read it and understand it and and he and he re- he revels in it right i mean he at the very end he talks about how his case will be studied for for generations 
I imagine it would because I just felt like it was so methodical and and so devious that 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 probably was something that police department was going to talk about. I mean, if nothing else, the individual cops that were involved in it were probably going to be like, man, I was on this crazy case. You have no idea what, was, what happened. Right. But it's ironic that he kills somebody for pride, saying that they are pride, that they are, they are the embodiment of it in his mm-hmm. mind's eye. And yet he is full of hubris to think that he would be so important that that he's got to document all this shit in, in these composition books mm-hmm. that somebody's going to give a shit about anything he ever wrote. You know what I mean? And right. that it's up to him to carry out this punishment on these people. Isn't it? A, you but, know, but the, it, the judgment. Precisely. Precisely. I think it's so funny that the things that we hate in others, we often don't realize are in ourselves. You embody. Yeah. We don't, we don't know. We don't realize it, that we don't like the things that we don't like are either the things that we choose not to see or the things that we have yet to accept in us. And he's just proving the point. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And he was thinking on a different plane. Like he could have been so intelligent. And I, I think I've mentioned this with Brenda several times. Is like, it's crazy how you can be so smart. And then once you reach this threshold of intelligence, you almost start just like going off the deep end. And then you start just like going into like crazy territory. Now you start looking past all this facade that everyone else is living in. And you're just, you're kind of living in your own world. Precisely. If you're living in your own world, that means that you're, you're thinking about your own thoughts and you're no longer thinking about reality. You're not actually seeing reality and taking it for exactly what it is. Um, you're, you're thinking about thinking. And so, of course, it eventually goes off into like this fantasy, you eventually go off into your own little world. But maybe it's also like crazy genius, but you don't have anybody else to bounce your thoughts off of that are on the same level as you. So these thoughts are just your own thoughts and you don't have it doesn't become a conversation. It's a conversation with yourself. Mm -hmm. So obviously you're gonna go crazy because you don't have anybody to, you know, bring you back to reality or tell mm-hmm. you, no, this is a crazy idea. Cause how many times have you thought like, Oh, I'm going to do this. And then you tell somebody else and they're like, are you serious? And then they talk you back down to reality and you're like, yeah, you're right. I was crazy or whatever, you know, <laughs> but like they have to be on the same level as you or see their perspective of your thought, but you don't have that. You only have yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did they have to end up doing that for you on dark chatter? <laughs> maybe (laughs) like me and Megan go off on tangents all the time and Jessica's like okay guys okay guys like even Uh. on episodes that Jess isn't on the episode we're we're like oh it'll be shorter it'll be a shorter episode because there's only two of us oh no it's way longer because there's nobody to bring us back to the tracks we're supposed to stay on (laughs) I don't think yeah sometimes it's like we never start on the tracks so we just kept going down the hill and see where it took us (laughs) But um, I wanted to say I also like the little swerve with the the greed crime scene because after she points out that the painting is upside down, they immediately head back and they're like, oh, cool. There's something in the painting. That's like their first thought. And that's I think that was my first thought, too. I was like, mm-hmm. what's in the painting? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're like searching it and there's nothing on here. And he cuts it open. And uh, it was kind of weird that Mills was kind of freaked out that he had a knife. He was like, what's that? And he was like, butterfly knife. I know. I thought that was weird too. Like, I was like, okay, like it's a knife. Relax. It's it's like a reasonable knife to have in your pocket. It's not like he pulled out a butcher's knife or something. Right. That would have been been hilarious. Just hold on a second. Let me just. (laughs) Right. But but uh, but here's the thing, though. Um, playing devil's advocate here. Here's here's Mills. That's come from a small town. And uh, maybe has seen other pocket knives before, but th- a butterfly knife is very specifically for attacking. That's why it's not allowed in technically in the state of California. It's a it's 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 a piercing weapon. I, I can't state this enough. I mean, Somerset is just 
always prepared. I mean, even when they he opened his trunk, he has like everything organized and he has some sort of tool or or uh, item for every single crime scene. And so sure enough, he has like the tools he needs to be able to like dust for prints immediately, right? He doesn't even mm-hmm. need to call in a team. He's always just like, uh, he's like, hold on, I think there's fingerprints here. And he already has the kit on him. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's compact. I, I did a, in seventh grade, I, I studied this guy. I'm trying to think of his first name, uh, last name McDonald, but he's the one who created, he patented the, the powder itself. The triad. The triad. <laughs> the McDonald triad. What the serial McDonald's. killers when they're kids, like the three things that happen when they're kids. They eat at McDonald's. Oh, interesting. No, it's like bedwetting, <laughs> lighting fires, being mean to animals. Oh, animals, yeah. Interesting. I've heard about that. Oh, like and those three things. And that's him? That's the same guy? I don't think it's the same guy, but it when you said be. that, I was like, yeah, it could be. Yeah, he used to do blood, uh, he used to do like blood analysis, all that kind of stuff, blood splatter analysis i remember i had to do that actually like anyway point being though that he he made it so it's more um effective at grabbing fingerprints this particular powder and uh compact so that you, any any detective could carry it and it's just of course him being old school maybe, maybe somebody who who just wants to is more siloed and just wants to focus on their detective aspect whatever that may be now a more modern version of a detective would focus more on allowing the the crime scene investigators to do their thing and uh, forensics to dust but I kind of think of it this way. You go to grade school and you have the people that are like, man, I don't care. I just got a folder and I don't got a pen. I don't have paper or anything. And then you got like the kid that has like the backpack full of books. And this thing looks like it weighs as much as they do. And they got everything. They got five pens. They have like a pound of paper on them, you know, and they're willing <laughs> to, they're always the ones that are like <laughs> passing it out to like all the, the classmates. Cause it's like, Oh, I don't have any paper. Can I get one of those? Hmm? You need a protractor. I got an extra one. Hmm. I also see it as like this, like what I, so I used to work for like, um, a private practice doctor's office. So, and I was the office manager. So something needed to be done. I just did it. A computer needed to be moved. I did it. I was it. I was payroll. I was HR. I was everything. And then I go work for a bigger company and I'm like, they're like, Oh, this needs to be done. And I'm like, Oh, I could do it. And they're like, no, we have to call and put in a ticket and have it done. It'll be done in several days. So he probably is like, I don't want to wait around to call somebody to do this when I could just do it myself and get it done and have the answers that I need right here and right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's how I saw it. It happens to us all the time. Like people are just moving stuff and more often than not breaking it. Right. They'll call in and we'll ask them over the phone. So uh, what, what changed? And they're like, well, I moved it from here to here and now it's not working. Well, there you go. That's what the problem is. And your, fir- your first question is, well, did you turn it on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> did you turn it off and turn it bla- back on? Unplug it and plug it back in. Oh, it works. See, you know, you're going to fit right in. That's IT, IT right? Fit right in. That's, that's all it is, basically. <laughs> and if, if that doesn't work, then you just do it again. You just turn off do again. again. Yeah, exactly. All right. Next up, we have Sloth. And uh, how about that jump scare? Oh, my God. That thing. It got me again. When I I first watched the movie, (laughs) I shit my pants when that thing happened. It did get me again. I knew it was coming, uh, but it definitely got me again. And, Michael, how you said the first scene was like the first crime scene was what you remember. This is the one that I remember from Uh, my first time watching it with all the air fresheners hanging. Yeah. um, All the little trees hanging. That's that's what I picture when somebody says seven. I picture this crime scene. 
Man, this one was freaking disturbing. It was it was probably one of the most yeah, I mean definitely one of the more memorable ones, but it was so just unsettling. Just like the method he used and the lengths he went to to kind of draw this out as much as possible and conceal it as best as he could. For a year. This was just man, this yeah. was so evil on many levels. Truly. And then again, it begs the question, was this person really slothful or, or you know, because he's forcing this person he's to forced, live yeah, as a bound. sloth. Precisely. Yeah. Well, they did go over this guy's rap sheet because they ended up going to his house because they thought that he was he could have been the killer um, because and they go over his rap sheet and it's he's just a kind of a, yeah or behind the painting. Yeah. That's what it is. It's not this guy's fingerprints. And so they go to his apartment. They're like, yeah, look at his rap sheet. And they're like ticking off all these different crimes. Yeah, he has to be. He's he's done a little bit of everything. He's just terrible. Like, I think he was like abusing children and like just a bunch of different terrible things. So they're like, he has to be the guy. Yeah. So that's how they ended up at his his apartment. Uh, I see what you mean. So in a way, it's almost like... uh, it was too good to be true, basically. Not so much too good to be true. What I was going to say is more like uh, going back to what I was saying about sloth and about how he forced him to be slothful in a sense. Um, he killed him because he was a bad person. He, he did in a sense what uh, Dexter does, right? This is a shit per- This is a person who's done some really shitty things. and uh, in Except his- he puts it on display instead of trying to hide it. Right. And so he, he casts judgment on this guy. He, he, he's his, uh, his, his judge and executioner and decides this guy needs to die. He's done some terrible shit. And I choose to make him die as sloth. But I think he was also like did a lot of like robberies and stuff. So we probably saw him as somebody who wasn't willing to get a job kind of thing. So that Mm -hmm. could go back to sloth as well. I see. He was just kind of like mooching off other people. Makes sense. Okay. So so it wasn't like it was as just random like that. So he did. Right. Got you. He's a mooch. Yeah. Obviously, Somerset and even Mills, too, they weren't buying it. Everyone else was convinced that, cool, this is the guy. They didn't question, why would he just touch the wall all all behind the painting, you know, make it painfully obvious? But, um, yeah, everyone was convinced that this was the guy, and Somerset and Mills are like, mm, I, don't, I don't know about this. So they, they show up. They're kind of reluctant, and um, it's just crazy how strange it looks to have hundreds and hundreds of air fresheners just hanging from the ceiling, and that was just to conceal the smell of this guy that hasn't moved. He's just laying in his bed for like a Decomposing. year. Decomposing. Can't even imagine the bed sores. Oh my gosh. Ugh. Oh, he was given, um, wasn't he given like antibiotics or something like that to oh, prevent def- the bed sores? Wow. Okay. And, and IVs so that way he wouldn't yeah. starve. Yeah. Um, so he, um, and the thing is like this guy was has a long rap sheet because he's getting caught for this and that and this and that. He's obviously not a very intelligent criminal if he's getting caught all the time. Right. And also <laughs> his crimes are not this type of crime. Not on this level. I don't think he killed anybody or if he did, it was just like something like a bar fight stabbing or something. I don't remember exactly, but it's not a calculated he's not a calculated person you know so that's why they're like well this no like this guy doesn't he doesn't fit the mold of like how precise all of these crime scenes are like he's just not he's not on that level mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what i thought was important to note here too was that this is when we start to kind of see uh the little chips in mills you know like his armor because he he's really disturbed by the sloth crime scene and he goes outside and you know he's really upset and he's pacing back and forth somerset's 
telling him not to get motion involved, you know, like keep us cool. And that's when he yells at the photographer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In the stairwell. Get the hell out of here. And so that, that was pretty cool. Like, you know, he was like really close to the, the crime scene and you don't find out until later that that was the uh, killer right yeah. there. Yeah. I like when they do stuff like that. Just little like Easter eggs here and there. Right. Yeah. Right. Or like the directors in every film or like a random person. You're like, oh, my God, I never knew that was so and so or whatever, you right. know. Right. Right. Just little cameos. But even more so in this one shows like how far ahead he is than all of them because he's literally showing up everywhere like and they're all detectives and they're not like, wait, haven't I seen this guy before? A lot of these guys are known for returning to the scene of the crime. That's what's discussed often. And like, so is that because they, they want to just have the satisfaction of seeing everyone's reactions? Like, they want to see in person? Makes sense. They want to see the fallout, but they also want to show that they're smart enough that they can return and not get caught, kind of thing. It's different for That's everyone. Yeah. yeah. Um, around this time, isn't this where. Tracy, who's Gwyneth Paltrow, that's when she um, wants to talk to Somerset, right? She's not really coping well moving to the city. And so they meet up at this diner. Yeah. Um, What do you guys think of Tracy? What do you think of Gwyneth Paltrow's character? I think she seems very lonely. I almost felt like she kind of gave me like a Mary Sue type of character. Like she's supposed to be this beautiful, flawless, almost trophy wife type of person for David. But, you know, she's also super understanding and loving, supporting. And it's almost like she never gets upset or maybe she just feels like she trying to keep it all together. So that way she doesn't affect uh, Mills's, you know, David's uh, work or anything like that. But I don't know, like, obviously she feels lonely and she doesn't feel comfortable moving to the city. And she felt like she could confide in Somerset. You know, he seems approachable. Yeah. Which is, which is again, uh, interesting because then it seems she's, uh, her husband's not approachable for the very reasons of him being so kind of impetuous, you know, so, so volatile at times. But did you guys think that Tracy was kind of one dimensional or is that just me? Aren't most female characters one dimensional? (laughs) It, It wouldn't have taken that much to at least give her like, you know, some extra qualities other than just like, I'm the wife and it sucks being in the city and that's it. Right. Well, I guess um, maybe this is adding another layer to it. It's revealed that she's pregnant. Does that make her more valuable to the story? It just makes her more tragic. Right. Exactly. I mean, more like tragic. It just makes her more, yeah, more helpless. And I don't know. It's just a plot device, as my son would say. <laughs> this could also be used to reveal more of... Um, Somerset's backstory because this is where he reveals why he's so bitter. Right. Right. Plot it's because right. he split from his wife because she wanted kids and he didn't. And um, he was, he was just really adamant about that. Wouldn't compromise at all. And now he's kind of regretting it. I don't know if it was only because his wife's gone or that he never had kids or that he never tried to work things out with her. Now he's just kind of like by himself. He's also lonely himself. Mm. Yeah, he let his life pass him by pretty much. But then he also tells her if she doesn't want to keep the baby that she can't tell Mills that she was ever pregnant. That's true. Yeah. Are they implying that that David, he actually wants kids or because I don't think he's ever mentioned it before. So I think they're just assuming. Yeah, I guess it would just be an assumption. But she doesn't want it because she already just feels like lonely and she knows it's all gonna be on her especially once mm. he like moves up in the ranks like he's working more and more because that's how somerset even gets invited to their house in the first place is she calls him when he's at work and they get into a fight and then somerset takes the phone and kind of like sweet talks her and then she invites him over 
Oh, so she was calling. She kept calling because he was just working late. He's always in right. the office. Right. And um, she's just like, so I'm just checking in. Like, are you still alive? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Give me a call. And he was kind of being a jerk to her. And then Somerset ended up talking to her. Even though I really love this movie, it's like, I feel like things surrounding the Tracy character were the weakest part of the movie for me. I think it's just tough, though, to to pack everything. I mean, I feel like it was so well paced that some of the pacing would have been lost if they had tried to dive more into her character. So I'm like, it's it's a it's a very fine line to to try to fi- try to make her somebody that you'll miss with not much screen time. With not much screen time, and she is she had at that point been in several other movies. I think she may have even been in Great Expectations with Ethan Hawke, which uh, either that year or or prior to this coming. So out, were there great expectations for her coming in? It may have been, but. Uh, you know, they were actually already engaged at the time, I believe, Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow when this movie was being made. Yep. Fun fact is that um, I actually really dug the chemistry between Gwyneth Paltrow and Brad Pitt because they were dating around this time. Mm-hmm. I think they were dating for like uh, a year or two before this movie. Right. So it was like an excuse to be able to spend more time together, but also to, to actually capture each other on film and, uh, and, and be with each other that way. So maybe that was also a draw for her, even though she had been in other roles before with more more speaking parts. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think that she's very endearing and, and yeah, tragic. I mean, the fact that they can convey that kind of tragedy that you would even say that word makes it, uh, yeah, they did their job then. Um, yeah. nothing, nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. Wow. So who was like the biggest star in this movie? Would you say, was it Morgan or was it Brad Pitt? Brad. Was Brad Pitt kind of like in his prime around this time? Bra- yes. Brad Pitt. Cause he'd already yeah, done a river runs sure. through it. Uh, legends okay. of the fall had come out or was coming out around that same time too. Like he was just firing on all cylinders at that point. He'd already been in the, in the late eighties. He was in, um, Thelma and Louise. That was where he made his breakout performance mm. and then from then on he was just boom boom, boom. like for me i mean the earliest thing i had seen him in was interview with the vampire and of course you know this is a much different role than that i can appreciate the like darker and like flawed gritty realistic character that brad pitt was trying to portray in this movie i did think some of his acting was a little over the top sometimes <laughs> which kind of bugged me but um overall i thought yeah he was a damn good actor in this movie yeah, absolutely. I thought he played it well. Um, and I remember as a kid being so like in his corner, I only saw it from that perspective. It just made sense to me. Like, yeah, this is just crazy. Who the hell is this Morgan Freeman guy? And then watching it now, I was like, oh, wow, this is like his undoing. Uh, just everything. Oh, yeah. You just see it. It's like it's like a Greek tragedy of sorts, you know. And you, oh, it's just going to happen. This is just the way things are going to play out. He is who he is. And this is just how it's going <laughs> to. That makes me think of that. Um I don't know if it's a meme or something that's going around that says for the uh, a goofy movie. When you were a kid, you identify with Max. Oh, you just want to have fun. And your dad's so boring. He wants to go on this road trip. But as an adult, you identify with Goofy. And you're like, dang, Max, you're a little jerk. Like, just <laughs> yeah. go hang out with so your annoying. dad. <laughs> it's like the same thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It, it's funny you bring that up because... I think that's more with my sister, but we do plan on doing that movie at some point. Oh my God. That's one of my favorite movies. It's so underrated. It's a classic. Like, yeah. I love it. I wonder if I'll still enjoy it. <laughs> I wonder if I'll still enjoy it now, but we'll see because oh, I, I loved do. that movie. Yeah. Even the songs. Like the songs are super Oh, catchy. the songs for sure. I'm, I might even be power line for Halloween this year. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> nice. All right. I have to learn the perfect cast before I can do it though. If I want to be legit. 
<laughs> so are you going to have like your friends dress up as well, or is it just going to be you? No, just me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Powerland, and, uh, that's original. Above the crowd. Above the yeah, crowd. Of course. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen anyone dress up as Powerland, so that's going to be awesome. Yeah. Should yeah, be fun. That would be dope. That would be dope. Props for sure. That movie's classic, though. I was thinking, because uh, I think you guys were mentioning this earlier. Where is this city exactly? I don't Dude, think I, thank you because I they looked ended- it up. Okay, I looked it up. It it is a it's an unnamed large city. It says in, on Wikipedia, pretty much. Oh, it doesn't. Okay. Yeah, it's just a generic large city. That's interesting. Nowhere and anywhere, right? Because yeah. be, because of the fact that at first it seems like it would be in New York or maybe Chicago or Detroit, but then all of a sudden in, York, in the yeah. fucking desert, and I'm like, okay, well that's Victorville. I mean, well it's out out in that area. It's like the right. high desert area. So I'm like, okay, well, they're definitely not in New York. Where the fuck does it rain like this? Where they can, where they're in the city it, it and it rains rain like, like that, that in California. and then all of a sudden, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, well, for them to be able to just make a quick drive, it wasn't that far from the station. I'm like, they what just the combined hell? elements from like a lot of big urban areas, and they're like, we're gonna construct our own fictitious G- city, GTA style. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty interesting that they just decided to not place it anywhere specific. This is kind of cool because it, they always refer to it as like here or the city, right? Like it's always yeah. super generic right, right. or this city. And it's almost like you could be near a place like this yourself and um, you may not even know it. Right. And like how you're saying, it has elements from various places. And so you got these people living in or near these urban areas and they're probably like, this kind of reminds me of where I live. You know, it could be happening right in your backyard. Right. Precisely. Maybe that, that also makes sense to make it uh, any anywhere instead of just a very specific place. This could happen to you. Man, when they're talking about the FBI monitoring their reading habits from the library, I thought that was pretty interesting because they're all talking about how this is like super illegal. I have no doubt that the government and all these agencies are probably monitoring everything that we're doing. Oh, for sure. I mean, even when you talk about something, all of a sudden you get ads for that on Instagram. Like my boyfriend talks about Star Wars a lot and all of a sudden I have all the Star Wars stuff. I don't even watch Star Wars. Like, what the heck? But it hears him and it, I get Star Wars stuff. So um, it's kind of funny that you say that too, because I just covered a case of this woman who disappeared and this reporter, um, like over a year later, happened to see that she had checked out a book that she was reading regarding a disappearance of another woman. So then she went back and grabbed a team of several people. They found 25 books that this woman had checked out and they were all on either um, strange disappearances, murders, different things like that. And then this woman has disappeared. She's never been found back in the 60s. And I'm like, well, if they saw like my search history right now, like... <laughs> I'm probably on a watch list somewhere. I'm sure I am. Mm. But Listen, you have the freedom to read whatever you want until they decide otherwise. Right. <laughs> Which right. is probably coming <laughs> with the way things are going in this country. What the killer did not anticipate was that Somerset would be as as good, as curious as he was and asking the right questions, asking really, really good questions to the point where he didn't even anticipate that they would narrow it down to him so soon. Remember, he well, right. he, they end up at his apartment door. Yeah, yeah, that and that kind of throws a, a wrench in his plans. But this was some damn good detective work, even though a lot of it, you know, the heavy lifting may not necessarily have been done by either the two main characters. But I mean, that was still like an awesome lead, you know, that he was like, all right, so let's let's uh, target this range of books and everything that has to that pertains to 
the seven deadly sins in some capacity. It was kind of a long shot, you know, it's casting a wide net and you may not catch anything. It might just be a waste, a complete waste of time. And then, you know, now you're even further behind the killer. But um, luckily they got some good information out of it. Kind of reminded me of just like some noir type of uh, moment right here where it's just like, you know, I'm just like reading through all the details and eventually you come across that one little bit of detail that you needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it does. That move. This movie does have that vibe, too, especially with like all the rain and the darkness. Oh, man. Yeah. It, I'll talk about it later on because I thought it was pretty cool. But just like, yeah, like their dress, you know, they have like the trench coats and like the hats and everything. The rain is just like pouring off of it. Mm-hmm. And um, I love the whole aesthetic. Like I thought that was that was very throwback and it was cool. Yeah. The relaxed fit pants and all that. Kind of remind me of Batman, too, though, like the Batman movies. Yeah. I can oh, yeah. That. Yeah. Gotham like City. Gotham City. Um, and how you said this led to the killer's apartment. So they uh, found out where this guy lives. They don't know that this is the killer yet, but they're like, you know what? This guy may be working with the killer or he might know something about the killer. So let's go check him out. And man, that was such a awesome scene. Tension in the air oh, like yeah. when they're standing at the door. Deliberating. The killer walks up the stairs and he's just, he kind of just like stops on his tracks and he looks super sus, right? Like this guy's like, whoa, who the fuck is this guy? So he's just like standing there and you can tell like just from his body language, I thought this was genius because they're still trying to conceal his identity and he slowly starts walking towards them and kind of like adjusting the bag in his arm. And then suddenly he just starts firing on him. So that's where the chase scene ensues. And this was also pretty old school as well. It's like that chase scene through the rain, through the streets, diving over cars, you know, and stuff like that. Down the spiral staircase. Down the like- spiral staircase. <laughs> Yep, firing down on him, and then and then running through apartments and <laughs> bathrooms, yep. and it, it always seems like every apartment is connected. You're like following this guy through an apartment, and then it just like goes through door after door after door after door. Yeah. But what I thought was crazy is when he goes into the room with the kids watching TV, and they're still just sitting there watching TV, like some guy didn't just run through and jump out the window. Like they're just acting like nothing happened, and he's like, "Where'd he go?" And they point to the window, and they're just still like watching TV, like it's perfectly normal. <laughs> You know, the kids are that way, though. They're just like super focused on like something on TV and there could be like gunshots going on around them and they may not even notice. Oh, my daughter would. She thinks she has a detective agency. Oh, does she? (laughs) Anything in the neighborhood. She's like, that's suspicious, isn't it? Why is that guy looking at that? Isn't that suspicious? What do you think this is? Do you think this is a clue? I'm like, oh, my God, girl. We passed a cop. I know. We pass a cop and she's like, I don't think that's really a cop. And I'm like, Emily. It's a cop, okay? Literally wearing a <laughs> uniform in a cop car. It's a cop. <laughs> have you seen, or have either of you guys seen The Black Phone? No, but I want to. It looks so good. Okay, well, what you described kind of reminds me of the sister on there. But yeah, <laughs> I won't spoil anything. Just <laughs> go see it. I thought it was pretty cool. No, I knew. Yeah, from the trailer, you can tell she's a little Nancy Drew. She's like, yeah, something's up with this. I'm going to figure it out on my own. Good head on her shoulders. That's awesome. Hey, another fun fact about this chase scene, that during this adrenaline-inducing chase scene, Brad Pitt legitimately injured his arm. Did you guys know that? No, I didn't. Yeah, so mm-hmm. you you know it's like how um, his hand is like in a, a cast or whatever, right? It's all wrapped right, up after right. the chase. Mm-hmm. So that was actually a real cast that he had because during the, the chase, he was like doing some of his minor stunts. And I guess he like landed on a car wrong or something or too, too hard. And he tried to brace himself by placing his arm on the windshield 
and his arm went through the windshield and <gasps> just ripped up his forearm. Oh, shit. oh my god, that's terrible. So he got messed up. But man, Brad Pitt's a trooper. He got that taken care of. He got the stitches, got a cast, and he went right back to work. So Right. Well, he finished filming that day then because, I mean, he had his arm in what looked like a sling. He was kind of like he had his arm in the coat or something like that. But but when he goes over there, he looks like a wounded bird before he gets the cast on. He's like he's finishing the scene. I was always wondering, like, when the hell did that happen? When did he get injured? But I just assumed I was like, I don't know. He bumping into walls and stuff. Dang, I guess. He was running on adrenaline. <laughs> the director, David Fincher. He actually wrote this into the story by, I guess, explaining it by having him fall off of the the scaffolding, like the uh, fire escape. Yeah. yeah. Him falling into the trash apparently was him like tweaking his arm and him, I don't know, like breaking. Sure, sure. Interesting. Yeah, it just makes me appreciate that that scene even more than knowing when you know when he gets chased down and just the slow, just the, just just the anticipation of having the gun pointed at him, like let's get this shit over with so I can get my arm wrapped and everything. But like <laughs> having this gun pointed at him in the rain, and he's just like, no. I don't. I don't know if that was before or after the injury, but um, right. That scene itself, again, you know, like very throwback. I love the angle of it too because it's pointed, it's like pressed up against his temple and it's like from his temple's point of view. So it's like looking up the, the top of the gun towards the killer's face. Mm-hmm. The gun is in frame and in focus, but the killer is blurry and his face is still dark. So it's still concealing his identity. And I just love that uh, that shot. That was one of my favorites from the movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very artistic for sure. Could have just done like a, a, a regular side shot of him like holding the gun, right. you know, and still right. in his face. But right. They want to get a little artsy with it. And I, I appreciate it. A little, but it definitely conveys, it conveys two things. Number one, you still don't know who the guy is because of him still being blurry. So having that shortened depth of field helps. But, but also the fact that he's over him. So you feel helpless because he's standing mm. over you as the, as the audience, as you're looking he's pointing up. at the camera, right, essentially. Yeah. Right. So you, That's you true. feel helpless like he does with the gun being pointed at you. You feel the, that this guy, although you don't know who he is and may have been injured, he still has more power over you. Okay. Okay. Well, um, needless to say, Mills fucks up and kicks the door in to John Doe's apartment because, you know, he's just riding on emotions right now. Somerset is trying to tell him, like, listen, we have this guy dead to rights. We'll track him down. We just need to wait for the warrant, the search warrant to show up. He's just like, nah, I'm doing it now. Boom. And kicks it open. So basically what this does is anything they find in the apartment can't be used against the guy. Right. Based off of the loss. Well, sort of. Only because he finds a loophole. So it's interesting yep. that that whole that whole fight that they have between each other, you know, you have Somerset with his morals. He's not his his principles are I'm not going to violate the Fourth Amendment. I'm not going to make this, ad, you know, admissible in a court of law or inadmissible. I don't know. What's and for those listening, um, can you explain the Fourth Amendment? Like uh, what what is that exactly? Uh, the Fourth Amendment I actually had to look that up myself. I did too. Well, it's basically like in a nutshell, it's not allowing people to randomly search your home and take your stuff without a warrant. Without you're right, without a warrant, which proves probable cause yeah. that they have re- a reason to be there in the first place. And the only and, and they couldn't prove that <laughs> the only way they could do that was to in, um, um, incriminate the guy who gave them the information in the first place and say it was ill gotten. And it was like, oh, well, this library wasn't, books. right, right. That the that the FBI was was is spying on people they can't let that out so it's like oh man we're screwed so you have somerset's principles like this but then you know then you have uh brad pitt's willing his desire his overwhelming desire to just fucking win and and get what he wants so he does he finds a loophole actually what he does is he convinces somebody to give an interview to the police that's saying that yeah i broke in 
or <laughs> we we found it this way. Yeah, exactly. She was a witness. Like she was a witness, and he had her say she saw something, and then they paid her pretty much. Yeah, they paid her to be a, <laughs> exactly. They paid her for that. So yeah. so it doesn't screw them over. It actually makes it okay. So they could still prosecute based on this person's word. Well, I mean, what do you guys think of the apartment, John Doe's apartment? We finally get to see what he lives in. Pretty interesting. It says a lot about him too, right? It says it first shows that he's super religious. I mean, he has like that like neon red cross above his bed. It's almost like a neon wall mm. almost. Mm. And um, yeah, he doesn't have like Bibles and stuff all over the place and a lot of religious paraphernalia mm-hmm. all throughout the apartment. Yeah, there's a lot going on. He's like a maximalist. <laughs> Instead of a minimalist. Same as me. More is more. More. <laughs> notebooks upon notebooks upon notebooks. Seriously, especially Artifacts. when it comes to the notebooks. He's a collector. He's got he's got uh, um, you know different souvenirs from some of those crimes in jars. Yes. yes. It's crazy because they're taking their time to search the apartment and gather all the clues there. And they realize that, man, trying to read through all those notebooks is going to take a very long time. And so they're kind of distracted with that. And uh, John Doe immediately starts his next plan. So he goes through with uh, lust and pride fairly quickly. I think that's like within like the next day or two, right? Or maybe even the same day. Hmm. It was kind of hard to follow the times. The pace mm-hmm. kind of picked up a bit, yeah, right? right? Yeah, yeah. We don't really need to go like super into them, but uh, Lust is notable for that gnarly jagged knife strap on where they killed the the prostitute. Right. And, you know, like I was like, oh, he's like, oh, he made me do it. He held a gun to my head, which I mean, shout out to that guy, because that dude was acting his ass off for oh, like, that, that minute. Yeah, he yeah. was dude, just the stammering. And, oh, dude, he did a good job. Horrible. Oh, yeah. Pride is notable because the killer himself called it in. So that the cops would find it quicker, which I thought was pretty funny. He's kind of like, well, um, in order to for me to get to what I need to do, I got to get these two more sins out of the way. So he he just went right. ahead and did lust and pride. Yeah. Right. Because they found his living quarters. They yeah. rushed his timeline. Definitely picking up the pace and, and acting on his victims in a short amount of time. You know, he's... That's why I was like, he had to have done these like back to back or even maybe even set them up simultaneously because you imagine it takes some prep work and he had to track down the the prostitute and then pick up that strap on from that store. And then that does like the custom work. Mm-hmm. And then he had to like capture that guy and force him to do it. And then right after that, like immediately go take care of Pride. He, But Pride could have been done already. And that's oh, why he called so. it in because they hadn't found it yet. It could have been done like several days, mm. maybe not several days, but it could have already been done mm. when they even broke into his apartment and then he, they weren't finding it. So he's like, well, I don't know if they're going to find it in time, so I'm going to call it in. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That may have thrown off the order <laughs> of operations. Right. Well, because <laughs> she was just um, he cut off her nose and then he glued a phone in her hand and then he glued a bottle of pills in the other so her choice was either to call for help but she was if she was too prideful to call for help because her face was ruined by her nose being gone then she would just kill herself so she did she ended up killing herself that is crazy because she wow. was too prideful now do you think that was pride or was she just like in such a, a crazy state of mind that like maybe she, you wouldn't want to live through that experience as well it could have not been pride at all 
And maybe those pills were pain pills. I mean, can ima- only imagine mm-hmm. getting your nose cut off is pretty painful. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't remember if he said something about bleeding out. I don't know if that was even be if that would even be possible. No, she was wrapped up, right? Like she had the, the bandages yeah. on her face. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if that would have like at least like kept her alive for a longer period of time. Like sure. I don't think she was like on the verge Hemorrhaging, of death or anything. Like, yeah, but, yeah. But yeah, I mean that's still a pretty shitty situation to be in. Mm-hmm. I actually thought that was a pretty interesting concept as well. Was the whole like she could have lived, she could have survived, but she chose not to. That was some saw stuff right there. Mm. Yeah. Um, now that those are out of the way, I guess uh, last two would be Envy and Wrath. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Somerset around this time as well, having been through this craziness with Mills, I think he says that he wants to like face his fears now and see this case through to the end, whether that's like at the end of the week or end of the year or 10 years from now. I think he said that he's going to like try to see this case all the way through to the end. So he's kind of postponing his retirement at this point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's back in the game. I think at this stage, he was only, what, a day or two away from retirement. And now he's like, nah, I can't leave my boy high and dry like this. You know, I think now he has more of a rapport with Mills. They have more of like a bond, having worked a couple of these cases together now. But it might just be because it can't be like the one that got away kind of thing. Like detectives always say there's one case that sticks with me. Though If I had one case that I wish that I would have solved, it's this one. And maybe this was his. Right. And he just had to see it through. Right. Without having, uh, like you were getting too close to actually finding the guy. Whereas before, like you said before, Nicole, how he mentioned that there are so many unsolved cases. Maybe it was like this. He wants, he wants a win. He wants to take a W with him uh, into retirement. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He wants to go out with a win. Yeah. And he knows that he's, and like you said, he knows that they're close. So it's not like there's, they're not getting anywhere on this case and he's just going to work it to death. Right. But they're close. He knows they're close. He's like, we're right there. Yeah, they had him on his heels for a second there. You know, he's trying to gather himself. Mm-hmm. And they don't know what axe he's going to take next. But they know that they're, like you said, they're close and they're on his ass. Mm-hmm. But yep. the thing is, um, John Doe kind of forces their hand because he actually turns himself in. After he calls in Pride, I think they're arriving at the police station and they're kind of like discussing like their what steps they're going to take next. And then who shows up? John Doe himself and turns himself in with blood on him. Mm-hmm. And they mention it's two different people's blood that they identified. They're, they're like one belonged to Tracy and the other one was unidentified. Mm-hmm. And so that is foreshadowing for later, which I, I didn't even pick up the, the first time I watched it. And then second time I'm like, fuck, like he had two different people's blood on him. Mm-hmm. And I think they just kind of gloss over that because they don't ever really mention it again. But mm-hmm. that is, I think that's like, that foreshadowing and just that subtext right there is so disturbing. It is disturbing uh, now that you mention it and we'll, I'll get to why, <laughs> why that is so much more disturbing when we get there. Now it's finally revealed that the killer more than halfway through the movie is played by Kevin Spacey. Ta-da. He walks in and um, it's funny cause you know, everyone's all, all like get on the ground, you know, put your hand behind the head and they're, they're like trying to like order him around, but he's doing this on his own accord. You don't have to like force him to do anything, but I, I think that's just like natural reaction. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's in shock. It, it's interesting because they're trying to fingerprint him. And the reason why they could never find any fingerprints is because he cut off his fingerprints. So mm-hmm. now they're just like all scarred up and 
he can touch whatever he wants and it's not going to leave any prints or it's not going to leave anything identifiable. He's John Doe to a T as well. There's like nothing uh, that they can use to identify this guy, like no fingerprints, no bank statements, no employment records. And um, this guy is just like, no one knows who the hell this guy is. No one's seen him before. He looks fucking hella generic. He's just like a white guy with a shaved head, no facial hair. He doesn't really have like very many features that you can use to distinguish him. Well, and that's why he was able to be at all the scenes and not stand out, not be memorable. Mm-hmm. as somebody they'd seen before yeah i mean didn't, didn't they even draw up a little sketch and it's just like a circle with some eyes and like you know he i think he had like a cleft chin and that was it that's all that they could go off of mm-hmm. so that, that was pretty funny and now we finally get to the climax of the movie so the reason why they don't exactly have him dead to rights is because he uh alongside his lawyer uh, claims that he's going to he's just going to say that he's insane to get a lesser sentence instead of getting like the maximum penalty unless so his terms are that he wants Somerset and specifically David Mills to escort him. He can be handcuffed and everything. He can be hogtied for all he cares, but he wants to be escorted out to the specific location for an unknown reason. Doesn't he say he's going to reveal the last two victims? And that, I think that that's what, what it is. Says. Yeah, the last part of his plan. I think, yeah. I think that's what it was because then they said, "Well, look, are you going? Do you think the public's going to be okay with you letting him get off and knowing that there are two other dead bodies out there that have not been identified yet?" I mean, I guess they kind of just took their chance, probably you know, looking for these two dead bodies while they're heavily guarding this guy. I mean, they got the chopper, they got like backup, no doubt, you know, like a couple miles back and they're just closely monitoring this whole trip out to the middle of the field, the middle of nowhere, essentially. And who knows what they're going to find out there. Such a tense scene for me when I first watched it, because I remember distinctly how I felt. I was on this high, like, I'm just like, man, I have no idea what's going to happen right now. Events are kind of moving quicker towards the end of the movie they're having this private conversation in the car and man he's he's now that you're getting to interact with him and pick his brain about stuff and see how he reacts to things you see how crazy and how scary this guy is super intelligent he knows exactly what he's doing he has everyone even though they look like they're in control he's totally having them fall right into his plan and making it seem like Uh, They're the ones that are deciding what happens, you know? Yeah. I think it would be interesting if they did. um, It wouldn't necessarily be a sequel or a follow up. But if they did the movie seven from his point of view and they showed him like how he chose the people and how he orchestrated everything and made made sure everything met up time wise, because what it comes down to them in this field is he had to know how long it was going to take them to drive out there not just drive (laughs) out there but for him and his attorney to convince them to drive out there because Mm, i mean a lot of times cops will be like no we're not gonna allow you anything you know and sometimes it just everything takes time you know so like how did he know specifically at this time this is what time i need it to be delivered because that's the time we're gonna be there kind of thing he didn't even seem like he was too pressed for time either right because he's just kind of like going along with the flow so i wonder if he even accounted for that like maybe he knew that once they got out there maybe it was going to be like 15 minutes late and he can just like buy their time you know just draw it out have them like go around in circles until that van showed up. 
Yeah. Um, did you guys also notice, like, just before they left, you know how they're, like, wiring up whatever? Did you notice the foreshadowing with Mill's wife going into the climax of the film? Him talking about her? And they're just like, oh, do we get um, a worker's comp for shaving off a nipple or whatever? And they're just, like, cracking up. So what I liked about this scene was that at surface level, it seems like, you know, they're kind of breaking the tension. But if you listen to the music, the music was super eerie. It was it was really ominous, mm. even though, like, this was, like, a comedic sort of scene like more of like a lighthearted scene um that music was really ominous and it's it's really uneasy it kind of had like these low tones and everything i was paying attention to the things that mills was saying right here because i think a lot of people were maybe still too focused on the fact that oh the killer's here john doe's here what's he gonna do what's the next part of his plan i was also really interested in that conversation that they're having when they're wiring up and mills mentions that even his wife doesn't have cable in like the same scene, but later on, he says, if I keep coming home late, my wife is going to think something's up. And so they keep mentioning the wife going into the climax, mm -hmm. which I thought mm -hmm. was like, oh, damn. They're not putting too much focus on it. That's going to give it away. But they want to make sure that it's like in recent memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not just that, but also the fact that despite his drive to uh, find this killer and do a good job and, I don't know, cut his teeth. Be, be a great detective he still loves her you know even though he may not have said it throughout he he, he does still love her and she loves him they they click they've been what high school sweethearts or something like that he hasn't been spending that much time with her and he would like to like get back to her like once they're done with this case and they put this guy away you know he's he's kind of fantasizing about this but it's too little too late right so once they get out to the middle of nowhere ah oh, what do they find they don't find anything at first but then this random van shows up and they think that it's backup for him, right? Like maybe some sort of escape route. Immediately, Somerset, he uh, stops that van. I think he gets in the car and he cuts it off way in advance and yeah. forces this uh, delivery guy to hand over the box. Well, it works out perfectly. It works out the way that he that John Doe wants it to because uh, Somerset was already away from him, was already away from yeah. the two of them. I forget what, what had been discussed before. But it was set up perfectly for, for John Doe to be with Detective Mills Because by when, they're, when they're by themselves, he, he just keeps jabbing at him, right? Like right. he's just yeah. like getting under his skin. He's like saying all these things under his breath. Mills is just, just keeps telling him to shut up. And like, you know, he's really frustrated, but he's also really concerned. And so they, they thought it was a bomb at first. And I mean, Somerset, you know, he's, I guess he's thinking like, hey, better me than someone else. So right. he's willing to, to take the bullet. He orders the guy to drop the box back away and... He finally cuts it open, but they don't ever show what's in the box. It, I like how they did this because you don't need to over explain things. There's almost like an ambiguousness, ambiguity about like how you have this box and you see that there's like some blood on it, but you don't exactly know what's in this box. Right. But sometimes like you're they do this because sometimes your imagination is worse than the, what they can present you with. Exactly. So like that. you can just like picture like the most horrible thing. You know, and you're thinking like, oh, his wife was pregnant. What does it have to do with that? Does it have to do with that? Is it something else? Yep. Like, what is it though? Because you, 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 you don't even know. I wasn't even thinking his wife when I was a kid. I didn't, I had no clue no. what it was. Mm -hmm. I was just like, you know, because it's warm. You know, the last feelings you are left with are warm feelings because of Brad Pitt, because of uh, Mills saying what he said about, oh, you know, I'm going to make it up to her. And you can tell that this whole time Mills was the target. 
John Doe does interact with Somerset uh, in some ways, but like he always keeps going back to Mills. Like he's just like targeting Mills. Like that's his focus. He's getting more reactions out of Mills. But I think that he knew that from the beginning, like just as long as what he plans with Mills goes through. So I, I wonder, though, when Mills became his target, because mm-hmm. Mills couldn't have been one of his original targets because he had just moved to the city and the sloth guy, he had been, you know, letting him deteriorate for over a year. So I wonder when he became, I wonder if he then went, was showing up at the scenes and that's when he was like admiring him and wanting to be him, Maybe. like, you know, which feeds back into it, but there's no way he was one of the original targets. What if he only became his final target after he pissed him off by chasing him down. Right. Right. And and he held that gun to his head. And what if in that moment he just decided, no, oh, I got something. For I you. got something. <laughs> I could kill you right now, right. but I'd rather. Something better. Yeah. Bigger plans for you. He was like in the right place at the right time. That's it right there. Envy, wrath. That's how I'm going to do this. Yeah. But then I wonder if, because didn't they had another person's blood on him. I wonder if maybe he had another victim that was originally and he already took care of them but then he's like no this works better no here's here here, here's what i was gonna get at which is what which is what's kind of more horrifying and i'd heard it said before but with i hadn't thought about it it didn't click for me until just now he says to him he says to him he explains what it is in the box what something is in the box and he says because I admire you so much and, you know, for your life and all the X, Y, and Z, I, I envy you. And therefore my sin is envy for your wife. You have a wife, you have a life that I, that I don't live. And I, therefore I envy you, which seems so, f- I won't even get into that just yet. So he says that to him and he tells him to become wrath. We know he says, I cut off her head. He says, I cut off her pretty head so her head is in the box we know that much to be true well i i feel like what what's kind of left to the imagination is you don't know if it's it's definitely something immediately recognizable so i don't know if it's her head because that seemed like a small box or it could have just been like her face or something it, you could, know? it could have been but he did say he cut off her head at the very least right. that's, that's what so I, something the something dealing with done. the head right so i cut off her head but he said oh he says he didn't know she was pregnant. And that's yep. when the whole, that's when it all fucking comes apart. And he's just like reeling from it. And that's when he ends up shooting him. But if you think about it, reverse that boom, when he says, oh, she, he didn't know. Cause she said he begged for the wife, he begged, begged for the life of her unborn child. Right. So he, there, that means that John Doe knew that she was pregnant because she begged for her child's life before he severed her head. It means he cut out the fetus and that was in the box as well. That's the other person's blood that was on him yeah. was the unborn baby. That's why it was unidentifiable. I think that's what they were alluding to. Hmm. So that's why I was like, man, that is freaking horrifying. Next level. That's why they there's no record of it because this this person doesn't technically exist yet. Right. But they it would have been a match to the half of the mothers. Because mitochondrial DNA doesn't change that much. That's the DNA you get from your mom down your mother's line. Would it still um, register as like a different if- person? Would it be different enough? It. Well, it is, and I don't know if D, how D, if DNA was advanced at this point, or if the advances in modern technology has made us, you know, every every second DNA is 
advance more than it was before. Sure. It, it's that, that that much is true. But I, I actually had to look this up too, because I was I had already I, I saw that and I was like, okay, different blood type. And I thought, does the blood in the mom circulate through the child's body as well? It was kind of confusing. I didn't get to the bottom of that. But what so so because through the umbilical cord, all that. But mm-hmm. I do know that my brother was okay. So my mom has O positive. I'm O positive. But my brother was born AB positive. So they had two different blood types in, in her body, which led to mm-hmm. some complications as it, as it ended up turning out. But that was definitely true. That much I know to be true. So I'm like, okay, it's possible to have a different blood type than the mom. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's what I thought they were alluding to. I don't know if that's actually accurate or not, but that's really the only other body that I think made the most sense was because that all ties back to Mills. And that was ultimately the straw that broke the camel's back. And that was what was going to get him to become wrath because I don't know if necessarily even killing the wife would have taken him all the way there. He was definitely pissed off and everything, man, the unborn child and killing it proudly displaying the blood of the the fetus on him at the police station that I think that was just like, I cannot let this piece of trash, yeah. this evil person live any longer. And Somerset knew that too. That's why he, that's why he backhands him. He's all, shut up. He's like, don't listen to him. Yeah, but yeah. that's why, but he's standing there. Yeah. And he like, that's when he backhands him and he's like, y- you know, your wife, he's like, shut up, shut up, smacks him. And he's like, oh, he didn't know after he's like, he just got punched in the face and he's just like, oh, he didn't know. It's like even juicier for him. Like, oh, this <laughs> is really going to seal the deal. Mm-hmm. Well, the only thing is, is if she was like early enough along that he didn't know even though they slept in the same bed and everything like i don't know if a fetus would have even been recognizable in the box or i mean it it just all depends on like how far along it is so i just kind of go back to maybe he did have another another wrath victim out there or envy victim out there but he just saw that this was playing out perfectly and decided to take advantage it was too perfect, I yeah. feel like, for him. Yeah. Yeah. So what'd you guys think of the infamous box scene? What's in the box? What's in the box? The famous line. Everybody knows that. <laughs> that was cringe every time I yeah. watched it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It still made me cringe, but it was also like just like the desperation of it. Like he just gave like got rid of any kind of like trying to be anything else you know Mm -hmm. like he he had so much ego before and that was him like without any ego he was just so desperate to know he knew he did know but he just he wanted to know but he also didn't want to know at the same time i thought brad pitt's acting was great throughout the movie and of course morgan freeman was like flawless but um this was one of the scenes i was just ah like had they gone with a different actor would the scene have been better We'll never know, but you know this was just Brad Pitt's uh, take on on the scene, and it was just like the constant drastic changes between the different emotions, right? Because he's like angry, and then he's like distraught, and then he's like angry again, and the fact that he just keeps like lowering the gun and like lifting up again, and it, it seemed a little comical to me, the overacting, but you know for the most part, it didn't ruin the movie for me at all. It was still enjoyable. To me, I don't know. It didn't seem like overacting. I, I and perhaps this is just me going in like a. With, with that same, the, the same rose colored glasses as when I was a kid, because it made such an impact on me. Seven was, it was huge. I appreciated it just to, to, to watch him cycle through them like that. 
because he really wants so badly because he's such a physical person as it is he wants to do things and it's like he he's so quick to act he's like oh got the gun up there he's like i'm gonna do this but then he also sees how uh, uh somerset was right he's gonna win if he does this but it's like yep. again the greek tragedy of it you know this is the kind of this this guy is very impetuous he's very reactive this is gonna just happen you just see it it's gonna play out the way that it's gonna play out no matter what impact somerset has made on him as a detective it's a small victory to, to be like, oh, yeah. You don't know like what he's going to do. He could go either way. He could um, not play the game and not let the killer win you know, not let John Doe win. Or he could fall right into it and ruin his life forever. I mean, his life was already ruined, but, right. you know, like ruin his career. Right. In the end, he one outweighed the other and he <laughs> became wrath. Finally, he took John Doe's life. Become wrath, right? He he didn't just say feel wrath. He was like become it, like let it consume you. It's almost like the dark side. Like the dark side took over. Do it. <laughs> I'm sure your boyfriend can appreciate that reference. Yes, I'm sure he will. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that that's a tough scene. You let him win, but it's like that's a small that's a small victory compared to what I could get right now by just ending him. Maybe yeah. he'd rot away in jail, but maybe he would. Maybe he wouldn't. Who knows? Mm-hmm. It shows what happened to Mills after he became Wrath. You know, he's just, he's almost in this catatonic state. Like he's just, he doesn't even know what to do with himself anymore. What's going to happen in the future? What's going to happen with the rest of his life? Like, I think everything is just, it got turned upside down completely for him. And um, so they leave that part ambiguous. You know, he's like in the back of the cop car. No one knows what the hell is going to happen to him. They take him away and Somerset is talking to the captain and, uh, this was this was pretty interesting because um, even though this is the end of the case, Somerset still decides that he doesn't want to retire. Like he he wants to continue working. Surprisingly, he still has more to give. Like it, it's interesting because this is such a big change for his character, comparing it to the beginning of the movie where he was just like you know really negative and he had no hope for the world. And after going through this tragic event. It's like working with Mills, he convinced Somerset that there is good to be had in the world and um, it's worth fighting for. That was that mentality and that energy, that drive that Mills had before. Since Mills is no longer able to do that, to carry that out, Somerset is the one that kind of picked it up and is going to run with the ball now. Hmm. How Well, how I saw it was... Now that Mills, he saw that Mills' whole life was taken away from him, his his job, his uh, his family, everything was taken away. It made him realize that he has literally nothing except for the job. So he might as well stick with the job because he has nothing else to do besides the job. Mm-hmm. Until it kills him or <laughs> other means. Yeah, that's crazy. It, it was interesting to see a killer that molds his motives around the seven deadly sins. Most of the sins kind of make sense to me, but... I feel like the only one that I was a little confused about, and maybe I, I just don't quite understand, was Sloth. Just the sin itself, not the the crime scene, but like, how is that sin defined? I think it's just like... What makes it a sin? Being like lazy in like a bunch of ways, like um, not taking care of yourself or your family, uh, like not having a job. That's how I always saw it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, because I always thought of it like that. Like, it was just being lazy. And I'm like, man, it's a sin to be lazy. That's That seems kind of like a, a stretch to me. 
Yeah, but I think it's just also not kind of like living off other people, being like a moocher, not pulling your weight, you know, just being like somebody that weighs other people down. Mm, Oh, we all know someone like that who just mooches off of people. (laughs) Yeah. That is a wrap, folks. If you made it to the end of our podcast, then you should be receiving your own box very soon. Any thoughts or closing comments? Uh, This is like one of my favorite types of uh, scary movies because I like the suspense, the thrill. I like the kind of scary movie that has thought to it. I don't like slashers and gore and shock factor. I Mm want to be able to try to solve the case. Like I want to be one of the detectives. So this is like one of my favorite types. I, I like the type of cases that have like a personal element to it where there's some form of connection or there's, I want to know the why that's why I kept saying like, well, I want to know how he found these people and why he chose them. Like, I want to know the why. And like Criminal Minds is like my favorite show. I like Mindhunter. I want to know the why. I want to know why they chose to do this or what is driving them. I almost feel like since you're into the true crime and all that stuff too, this is why I don't like watching that with Brenda is because most of those cases, since those are real cases, they're not for Hollywood or anything like that. Um, a lot of them are just left unsolved. It's just like, well, um, now that you know all these facts, the killer is never found or the killer got away or the case is still ongoing with no yep. leads. And I'm just like, this freaking sucks. There's no closure to any of this. There, it's not satisfying. Right. Well, I mean, but like I said earlier, your imagination can kind of fill in the blanks and and all these unsolved crimes. Everybody has like their theory about who did it, why they did it, how it happened. Everybody has their theory on like the ending of it. And sometimes when these long unsolved cases are finally solved, it's kind of anticlimactic. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was the neighbor that did it or it was whatever, you know. And sometimes you know who did it the whole time. And it's just frustrating. Like in the West Memphis 3, everybody knows who did it. But they just (laughs) don't want to admit that they're wrong and that they got the wrong guys. I don't know. The unsolved cases are the ones that get me the most, though. Like, they're frustrating and you do want them to be solved, but it's also, like, intriguing. As a kid, there weren't many shows that freaked me out, but the one that I could hear the intro for that would always, I would leave the room. I would leave the room. I could I could watch scary movies as a kid. I was watching Michael, Michael Myers. But whenever Unsolved Mysteries theme song Ugh. came on, I was like, I was like, no, because every time I sat there through one of them, it was like, oh, this kid got shot in the face in a park and he died. If you have any details about and I'm just like, what this that person's still there. I, I'm like, dude, and I remember one kid got shot and killed and it was a case of mistaken identity. And I thought to myself, well, I'm Mexican and I live here and there's like tons of Mexicans <laughs> and there's gangsters. Like, what if what if I look like somebody a case of mistaken identity? So I just. Yeah, I was like, I'm never wearing any kind of gang-affiliated colors. <laughs> you got to get rid of your L.A. Dodgers tracksuit. And my Raiders, orale. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, with Seven having been released in 95, man, I'm going to say this is still a damn good movie. Of course, I was saying, like, Indeed. I had some minor gripes with the, sure. the acting, mainly Brad Pitt. I mean, Morgan Freeman killed it, of course, <laughs> pun oh, intended. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> He did. But, you know, believe what you will about Kevin Spacey, the person. As an actor, I, I felt like he had a haunting performance in this movie. Yeah. And because he's reason. a monster in real life. Exactly. Well. <laughs> because for good reason. <laughs> uh-huh. 
it's one of those situations where are you able to separate the art from the artist? Like, I don't know. It's that's hard to say. It's it's kind of like a case by case basis for me. It It is for me, too. I have a hard time because I, I love, love, love the Backstreet Boys. Always have and always will. And like they've gotten me through a lot of tough times when I was like younger, you know, <laughs> oh, their music means so much to me, you know. Mm, that's um, Brenda's favorite band, by the way, growing up. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> um, but Nick's a rapist and Brian is like a member of QAnon. So, you know, it's 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 tough. Some of them, though, Damn. I'm like, it's easy to just be like, yeah, I'm done with you. You meant nothing to me before, you know, but it's like kind of like a family situation, you know, like a family member does something and you're like, I don't know. What's our relationship like? Let's see if I'll overlook this or not. It's like they're a criminal, but you're like, I mean, you know, still my family, but um, I'm not going to tell you my address because I don't want you showing up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll uh, Skype for Thanksgiving. How about that? <laughs> I'll hide my IP address. I did enjoy that final line, too. Talking about Ernest Hemingway, uh, the quote where the world is a fun place and it's worth fighting for. And I agree with the second part. That clarifies where, where he's at now towards right. the end of the movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess so. Well, before we go, Nicole. Yes. How can folks find your podcast, Dark Chatter? We are on like any of the platforms that you normally use, I guess. Uh, we're also on Instagram, Dark Chatter Podcast. Uh, you can email us at darkchatterpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook. Uh, when do episodes drop typically? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I like to keep us guessing, I guess. Uh, we, That's part we, of the charm. We shoot for every other Friday, but we um, have we've had a curse hanging over us, and it's been technical difficulties and injuries and this and that. And oh, geez. Uh, yeah, so it was like I think two and a half months between like a couple episodes because it was just issue after issue um but it seems like we are on track now for every other friday it kind of sounds similar to uh having you as a guest on our show <laughs> they just kept all these events just kept happening but you know what you're you're such a good sport about it and i i want to thank you for that it's probably me that brought this on to you guys <laughs> i just carried the curse carried over <laughs> you know now that you mention it this never happens this never has happened. never happened to us <laughs> you know i was born on friday the 13th jinx is practically my middle name <laughs> I mean, it's always a treat whenever an episode drops and they're always so fun to listen to. Honestly, like I just listened to the last one and, you know, you guys talking about Redlands and stuff. You can always tell that on Dark Chatter that the hosts are just having a good time whenever you guys are recording. We've been friends for a long time. Right That's on. right. Uh-huh. Three best friends from Redlands. Three best friends from Redlands, California. <laughs> <laughs> Friendly reminder, Affliction Oz podcast is available on all major podcast streaming services with new episodes dropping on the first Saturday of each month, 5 a.m. Pacific. Thank you to all the listeners out there for joining Nicole, Michael, and I. This has been Affliction Oz Podcast, episode 16, 7, and we will see you all next time.